It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Bellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. We talk about the idea of replicating the natural habitats of our fishes as almost a religious sort of thing. We understand that fishes have evolved over eons to reside in specific environmental conditions and ecological niches. And of course, sometimes when we attempt to replicate some of these environmental conditions, they create outcomes that we might have not expected, hoped for perhaps, but not expected. It happened again recently. A breathless phone call from a customer who recently switched over to a botanical style blackwater aquarium only to have her little Boraris, which she had for over a year, suddenly start spawning. That's totally cool. Now, sure, it could have been that they were finally of spawning age, or that the temperature in her tank changed one night, or any number of a dozen possible factors. She felt it was something in the water released by the botanicals that she added not too long ago. In her case, it was a celaton, catapa bark, and a few other items. I can't say with any high degree of certainty that this was indeed the catalyst for the results that she's enjoying. However, I hear and I've heard these kind of stories from hobbyists fairly often. In fact, likely too often to think that it's just a complete coincidence or a set of unrelated events and random factors. Yeah, we hear this stuff a lot. Actually, all the time. Like, regularly. <laughs> when we're, you know, what we're seeing is more and more of this type of stuff happening. We're seeing more and more reports of spontaneous spawnings or, you know, perking up of all sorts of fishes uh, associated with these types of conditions. The common denominator in all the reports that we receive are that the fishes are displaying better color, better vigor, and overall health after being recently exposed to the more physiologically appropriate conditions of a blackwater aquarium. Now, this is by no means us stating that blackwater tanks are somehow magical and possess the ability to make every fish spawn spontaneously or to thrive. That's just complete bullshit, and I will never or ever make or support those kind of assertions. However, it is more of an affirmation that fishes from some specialized environments, even you know those which might be several generations captive bred, can always benefit from being repatriated to some of the conditions under which they've evolved for eons. But here's the thing. We just can't replicate every single environmental parameter of our fish's natural habitats in our aquariums. We can, however, replicate many aspects of their natural habitats, chemical, ecological, and physical. We can. We've done this. Now, I have no illusions about what we do here. One of the things that we can do is analyze some of the ecological parameters of the natural habitats from which our fishes come and figure out how to replicate to the best of our capabilities the ones that we can. This is not an excuse for half-assed work. Rather, it's a bit of a concession to practicality. Realistically, not everyone has the test equipment, you know, ICP, OES, or anything like that, or the means to manipulate water parameters so that you can get X milligrams per liter of strontium, potassium, silicate, etc., etc. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do this. It just may not be the practical type of approach for many of us who don't have access to lab-grade analytical equipment and pure chemicals. And it's not always advisable to do so, even if you do have the means. We have, as hobbyists, have for many years felt compelled to chase numbers 
in our attempts to recreate the water chemistry of our fish's natural habitats as faithfully as possible. Now, this is a pursuit which I can understand. I do have enormous respect for those hobbyists who endeavor to do this. Now, as a side note, I remember several hobbyists from the reef aquarium world who were scientists or are scientists and who did try this sort of stuff. And their tanks were among the most average that I'd seen. That being said, I did see some tanks from hobbyist scientists who had access to incredible analytical equipment and chemicals, and they did have amazing tanks. I guess it balances out, I suppose. But the point is, it's not an automatic guarantee that if you do this and plug and play, you're gonna get this amazing tank. I think that the other problem is that we aren't exactly certain what some of these trace elements and such actually do in terms of benefits for our fishes. We just know that they're present in the natural waters from which many of our fishes come from. So where does that leave us? I guess I've often taken the rather sheepish response of saying that it's better to replicate some of the aspects of our fish's natural habitats than none of them whatsoever. Of course, I realize that some things are important, like pH and alkalinity. Some species simply cannot spawn, have eggs develop, etc., etc., under anything but the very tight parameters, with or without the presence of specific trace elements, etc. Such a case came to my attention when I was visiting a killifish forum on Facebook not long ago. One of the participants was discussing some new fishes he obtained, and one was from a rare genus called Epicimian. It's a weird genus because it's a fish that falls genetically halfway between Epiplates and Aphiosimian. That's weird if you're a fish geek, anyway. Even more interesting to me was the discussion that it's notoriously difficult to spawn, and it's only found in a couple of places in the Congo. Of course, that spurred me to do some research, and in fact, the type description of uh, of Epicimian crystal naron, which I totally butchered the name of, I'm sure, one of just a handful of identified Epicimian species is described as, quote, a large river, five to six meters, up to one meter deep. The river near Meduno at locality G02156 is also large, four to five meters, and about 80 centimeters deep. At both localities, the water was fast flowing with sandy bottom and no aquatic vegetation. Epiosimian specimens were found amongst overhanging terrestrial vegetation. Okay, it's good stuff. As an aside, just so you know, reading through these type papers and ichthyological studies often gives you some really good information on the ecology and the life cycle of the ecosystems and the fishes which, from which you know they come from. Boy, did I butcher that again. It gives you really great ideas about the ecosystems and the lifestyle of the fishes which come from various ecosystems. It's good stuff, that's the bottom line despite me twipping over my tongue today. Even more interesting to me in this case was that this fish comes from a region that's known for high levels of selenium in the soil. And that's really interesting. Selenium is known to be nutritionally beneficial to animals and humans at a concentration of 0.05 to 0.10 parts per million. It's an essential component of many enzymes and proteins and deficiencies of selenium are known to cause diseases. One of its known health benefits for animals is that it plays a key role in immunity and, wait for it, reproductive functions. Boom. Okay, that helps with the difficult to breed part, right? Selenium occurs in soil associated with sulfide minerals, and it's found in plants at various concentrations, which are dictated by the pH, moisture content, and other factors. As you might guess, higher concentrations of selenium are found in the plants, which are known to occur in the regions where that fish is found. Interesting. So I'm doubtful that we'll have, you know, we know the specific concentrations of selenium in many of the planted aquarium substrates out on the market. And most hobbyists aren't just throwing that readily available tropical Congo soil, you know, the one you can pick up at the local fish store right into the tanks, right? Because it ain't there, there is none. That's right. <laughs> so 
How would we go about getting more selenium into our tanks for Achilles, for example? Botanicals could be one way, like the Brazil nut. And the Brazil nut is kind of known to us, right? The monkey pot has something to do with this, doesn't it? Yes, the botanical we call the monkey pot. It's technically a fruit capsule produced from the abundant tree Lecithinus pisonius, native to South America and most notably the Amazonian region. Okay, not native to Africa, but it's possibly something we could use in an experiment to help increase selenium in our tanks, right? Maybe? I mean, just because this fruit capsule might have traces of selenium doesn't mean that if you submerge it, some will leach out, and if so, how much? I don't know. But the monkey pot killy mental exercise that I just went through there simply demonstrates the difficulty of actually determining what, if anything, actually gets into your water from botanical materials, and if it can actually have some sort of impact. There's so much we don't know. And yeah, these kinds of exercises have led to many assumptions, you know, like the shit I read on various vendor sites about the nutritional value of various leaves and you know, such, and how they can benefit shrimp because they have such and such vitamins and other compounds, which are known to do blank in humans. Therefore, they must impart these substances into the water for the benefit of our shrimp, right? Uh, pure assumptions are really rough. Yet, some things may be potentially verifiable via experimentation, right? Killifish are particularly fascinating subjects for this work because, as we've mentioned already, they're so intimately tied to their environments unlike so many other fishes are. And the connections between them and their environments and the things that we can learn from these relationships are compelling and potentially game-changing in some instances. We need to experiment. And of course, there are those water tests. Like any good reef aquarist, I'm into water testing. Not because it's, not only because it's good to know what exactly is going on in my aquariums, but because I can compare the water quality in my tanks to that on the reefs or rivers for that matter and this information is readily available. In many botanical-style aquariums, the water testing to me has always been to help me sort of learn the baselines at which these systems operate. I mean, seeing that our more focused practice of using you know, lots of leaves and botanical materials in our tanks is relatively new, it's not like there's this huge database in the aquarium hobby as to what's normal for these types of systems. Just like in the reef world, if you look long and hard enough, you can find all sorts of scientific papers documenting all sorts of water chemistry parameters in some of the wild habitats that we obsess over. Being able to know what is normal for wild habitats is a valuable asset. Of course, we can't expect to target and achieve every single parameter that we see in one of these studies of natural systems in our aquariums. However, we can use these as sort of a point of comparison to see what kinds of commonalities we can achieve between these natural habitats and our aquariums. Of course, you can get really crazy and just chase the numbers to the point of actually being detrimental to your livestock. There's some parameters that you can work with that can yield interesting results. Of course, the key is not to go overboard chasing specific numbers in the process. Redox is a great example of this. A good aquarium source that I found online defined redox, aka ORP, or oxidation reduction potential as a measure in millivolts of the tendency of a chemical substance to oxidize or reduce another chemical substance. In aquarium practice, redox potentials are closely related to the stability of the aquarium and is often used as a potential barometer of water quality. Things which, in, which decrease the oxygen content of the water, like decomposing food, fish poop, etc., can rapidly break down into more toxic compounds like ammonia and nitrate, nitrite and are known as reductive agents. These reductive agents can decrease the redox potential, which indicates deteriorating water quality. Now, I remember my first measurements of redox in one of my botanical style aquariums. I freaked the fuck out because I was getting a reading of 202 millivolts, when in the reef aquarium world that I'd been brought up into, you know, 
looking at numbers like 350 to 400 millivolts is considered acceptable. This reading was like sewer water in the reef tank land, so I was freaking out. Now, some hobbyists would use ozonizers to achieve these really high redox levels in their reef tanks and essentially end up burning, literally burning the fins off of some of their fishes in the process. It's a classic example of chasing numbers to the point where not even taking into account the actual damage that we're doing to our livestock in pursuit of some target number. The reality is that my botanical style blackwater aquariums were gorgeous and simply thriving with ORP readings of around 200 to 240 millivolts or so. Of course, if I were chasing what the book said about ORP in freshwater, I'd be trying to hit higher numbers, like 250 to 300. Because, well, because they said so? Yeah, I think so. I mean, thinking about numbers as absolutes is really a problem that we as hobbyists seem to get into. A real hamster wheel that many get stuck in, you know, we just spin our wheels. The reality is that we do far better to fall into some sort of range for some of these parameters and just to look at our aquariums and see how the organisms under our care are actually doing. And further, when you research the parameters of some of the wild habitats from which our fishes come from, some of the numbers you see reported seem to be well below what the books suggest you'd want to target in your aquarium. Not just the pH, but things like uh, phosphates and, 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 and materials like that. Again, the idea of simply chasing numbers and using that as a rational, you know, a rationalization that you're doing everything correctly is a fool's errand in my opinion. Rather, I think it's useful to study environments and the ecology of the environments from which our fishes come from and to see which ones you can replicate as accurately as possible, or at least which ranges, factors, or conditions you can replicate as accurately as, po as, accurately as possible. You'll find that it's extremely difficult to replicate them exactly in most cases, because of numerous factors related to the environment surrounding the aquatic habitats that we love so much. Factors like soil geology, rainfall, food influx from surround, flood influx, excuse me, from surrounding streams, seasonal temperature shifts, um, periodic sediment, nutrient influxes, etc., 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 are among the many variables which factor into the way these habitats evolve and function. One of the reasons I spent about I don't know, two years of my life playing with all sorts of materials to develop the nature-based sedimented substrates that we just launched was to attempt to replicate on some level the influence of soil geography on wild aquatic habitats and try that and see how that works in our closed aquarium systems. The results are interesting and they've been quite encouraging, but they're far from exact. We can at least introduce some of the factors which natural soils and sediments have on aquatic habitats in our aquarium versions and attempt to replicate some of their physical and aesthetic characteristics. I personally feel that they're more biotopically accurate than most of the substrates out there, but they're certainly not the best substrates ever made by man. And their very composition, silts, clays, sediments, ensures initially cloudy conditions that would discourage all but the most hardcore hobbyists from going all in with them as the sole substrate in a large display tank. They're largely experimental. Again, the joy and frustration of chasing numbers or attempting to replicate the characteristics and function of wild aquatic habitats is that it's damn hard to do with 100% accuracy. The reality is that if you can just recreate a reasonable facsimile in many cases, which is pretty incredible really, that's, that's doing something. However, because of the enormous number of factors and influences on aquatic habitats, I personally feel that this might be as close as we can get for the foreseeable future. Yet. I'd hardly think of this as a reason not to strive to try to recreate every possible parameter of nature in our tanks. The wins we rack up along the way towards this impossible goal of 100% accuracy will only benefit our fishes and advance the state of the art of the aquarium hobby for many years to come. 
So the parting shot here is that if you're excited like I am about the idea of replicating some of these functions and characteristics of your fave wild aquatic habitats, you should go for it. However, keep one leg firmly grounded in practicality and understand and accept that perfection is an unlikely outcome. Rather, it's about the process of learning, understanding, and experimentation, all done in an effort to get us closer to creating more optimum conditions for the fishes that we love so much. Stay experimental, stay curious, stay bold, stay studious, stay diligent, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tenant.